Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Welcome to our second episode of our third season of the Being Known Podcast. I say that hmm. and I can't even believe that we're here already. I know. Uh, it's I crazy, know. right? Um, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, it's, it's been a, a joy. Thing. It's been a joy the entire time. I tell you. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Yeah. And I, I just uh, like we've often said. I just so look forward to having you all join us, and I, I just love recording this with you, Pep, and having Amy to. Well, usually I enjoy having Amy around, but I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> In this season, uh, we are looking at Kurt's book, which, as this season is coming to you, the book has been released. It's The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. And what we're recommending that you get the book so that you can sort of follow along with us. And um, as you're listening to the podcast, we are chronologically going through the book. And I think it, it's a helpful companion to, to what you'll be reading. Yeah. And so today we're actually, uh, you know, talking about, uh, this, this notion of beauty after last episode, talking about desire and exploring this notion that, you know, our desire, uh, is something that is innate to who we are, that we are, we are kind of not just creatures of desire. It's not just that it's true about us, but, we came into being as a product of God's desire. God had a desire to create us in beauty and goodness and joy. And if we are going to uh, image God, if we are going to bear his image, then we also, as image bearers, we're going to express that desire and longing. And today we're going to wade right into where that longing desire actually eventually manifests itself. We talked a bit last week about this notion of being known. We long to be seen and heard and understood, and we move toward this state of integration that we talked about a lot in the last season. But at the end of this sense, or as a process of this sense of uh, being known, we discover that there is one more thing, one more thing that we... Uh, become aware of, that we are really longing for, that this process of being known leads us to, and we want to talk today about that, and uh, this notion of beauty that begins with this question of what is the next artifact of beauty that you're longing to create? And how about you, Pep? What's the next artifact of beauty that you want to create? It's a great, uh, it's a great question. You know, there's a couple of things that that I'm that I'm working on, um, you know that I that I'm, I'm hoping to bring beauty to uh, mm-hmm. as a part of. Um, there's a couple of there's one big event that um, that I'm go- that I'm programming and uh, directing that's going to be happening in November. Um, that okay, I'm, wait, I'm wait, excited wait, 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 wait. So I'd love for you all to hear a little bit more about what Pepper does. So when you say that you're kind of directing and so forth, like, like, what does it mean for you to, you know, you have a program that you're going to be doing and people might hear, oh, he's going to direct that. But like, what, name some things that that might entail. Well, you know, so it starts with just sort of 
brainstorming with the person that is the main talent or the main, you know, the, the, the main person that's going to be on stage and coming up with a concept of mm-hmm. uh, a theme for what that event's going to be and then programming with sort of story in mind. So you're, you're, you're programming an arc uh, of an event. This particular event is three days. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Um, there will be, you know, there's, there's music and there's dance and there's speaking and um, there is uh, an art element and all kinds of different things. And so you're, you're putting these things together so that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and 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 you're 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 building the whole experience to the main message that that happens usually towards, you know, you're, you're picking things up all along the way to get you prepared for the main message that comes at the end, and then it's working with um, with the technical people and the graphic designers and the you know, this day and age, you're using a lot of technology because a lot of these mm. events are mm-hmm. both live and virtual. So there's there's right. that aspect of things, um, which I thank thank goodness there are people that know how to do those, push those buttons, and do mm-hmm. those things because, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, but it's but it's being able to collaborate with them so that mm-hmm. you can understand enough about the the technology that you can bring special things to the event that you couldn't otherwise. And then it's bringing everybody together as a team and telling this story, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, with, yeah. With lights and sound and voice and dance and all the different things. So I'm, I'm assuming that there are times when you're in the middle of these, both in terms of your preparation, but also in terms of the live production, that things go wrong. You ever run into trouble? Yes. No, you probably don't. You, you yes, probably never no, have trouble. Absolutely. Your productions. <laughs> flawless. Seamless. They're flawless. That's right. Yes. That's why you're working with me. I mean, like, because, you know, I, I need somebody who can help this be flawless, given all the all the flaws that I'm going to bring to the table here. And I need somebody who can help make this, you know. Well, you know, in almost every production, be it theatrical or whatever, there's a certain period of time where in rehearsal where you're going through and you're just thinking... And it, it's it's like clockwork, you know. I mean, you're thinking, what are we doing? What am I, you know? This is this is just awful. I mean, it's it's just terrible. And you know, who do I think I am? And you know, all those things, right? And so you 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 have to in those moments when everybody's feeling it, you have to remain calm and push forward because you've been there before. Hmm. So, you, hmm. you know, you have to trust that, you know, I've been there before. I know that this is that, that law that we go through in the rehearsal period and, and we'll get to the other side of it and we'll discover things, you know, that will help, you know, the show be better and, and all that kind of stuff in the rehearsal process. Right. So that's like, right. that's a given. I mean, right. you know, and and that's across the board. I mean, you know, I think almost everybody that's that does any kind of theater or anything experiences that kind of feeling of, ugh, you right. know, why did I sign up yeah. for this? <laughs> right. And you know, the reason I'm the reason I'm bringing this up, you know, our our topic today is is you know beauty, and we we talk the the title of the chapter of the book that we're exploring today is beauty, desire made manifest. This notion that our desire, our longing to be known, so much of that is about storytelling, which is exactly what you're talking about that you're doing with this production. And 
I'm just really struck by right out of the gate as we're beginning to talk about this. This wasn't even planned for us right. to, to talk about to talk about this today. But I'm really struck by the notion that there there you are, and and as as the kind of in in some respects like the hub of this production, directing it and so forth, bringing together all these different things. It is this beautiful way. I mean, you're not just earning a living. I mean, of course it it you know it earns you a paycheck, but like in your soul. You are helping to create beauty in the world, and you're doing so by bringing together multiple different domains of uh, activity, whether it's the dancers, whether it's the speakers, whether it's the art, whether the technician, the technology, all the things. And we know that this won't be perfect. We know that things are going to go wrong. We know that we're going to reach a point where we were asking, like, what are we doing here? And, you know, those are points that we would say, well, yeah, we all reach that. We, we reach those points in just about every domain of life, we, in, in our marriages, in, in, our, in our parenting, in our jobs, in our friendships, in our churches, in like there, there, there are ways in which we're all having these moments like, what am I, what are we doing? Which is really not a question, really. It's the statement underneath that that says, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I have all the, all the feelings of, like, I, I, I'm, I'm so not up for this. I'm not adequate for this. All the things that evil would want to be saying to us in order to truncate, in order to shear off this manifestation of our desire, which is to create. We want to make things in the world and in the process of making things, as we talked about this process of integration before last season, I think about how integration is really what's taking place as you make this production. And we talk about this notion of growth as human beings includes, and I talk about this a little bit in detail in the book, this notion that from the time we're born to the time that we get older, we are growing in our capacity to tolerate distressing emotional states, this window of tolerance that we are expanding, that we're growing in our resilience. We are knowing, like like you said, like you know it's going to happen. It's almost like clockwork. You know it. And the other folks in this production who haven't been around, they look to you, like at some point, somebody's looking to you because like you can say, yep, this is what is to be expected. Almost, I mean, you know, there is a sense in which when Jesus says to his disciples, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. It's, he, he might as well be saying, like, it's like clockwork. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Yeah. And don't be afraid. In fact, be of good cheer. We're going to continue to, like, you're going to ask the question, what am, I, what am I doing here? Like, which is what this one particular couple, Graham and Carmen, were asking when they came in to see me for marriage work. And, of course, all they can see is the trouble in their life. And each one of them was pointing to the other as the source of it. And just like all of us can point to the trouble in my life, and some of it has to do with my own behavior, but we often are like, I'm pointing to somebody else that's the source of this. And I know that one of the first questions that I asked them was, what's the next new artifact of beauty that you want to create? And of course, they're looking at me like, what the heck? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not here, like... Well, I don't. Well, this doesn't make any sense. Well, to I have me. to say, I read that in the book, and I felt the same way. I'm like, <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, how can you, you ask know, these people that question? <laughs> right, I mean, right. Coming in I, for I, help. I, right. I, I, I should have been. I should have been speaking in French to them, and they, and they didn't know French. It would have been easier for them to understand what I was asking. But this is the point. This, this notion that we see a lot of our life through the lens of it being a problem that has to be solved. We, we sense and feel our brokenness, but we 
therefore don't see or miss out on this sense that Jesus is always in the business of coming back around and saying, what is the new thing that you want to create? Because I know that even in this space that feels so broken, this question of new creation is always waiting in the wings. It's always standing, you know, right by your side, waiting for you to like look it square in the face. And we're not going to come up with this on our own because for Carmen and Graham, like things were like, they were a mess. And so the whole notion of thinking creatively is kind of like imagining, oh, would you like to paint with me today while you're uh, having morning sickness with your pregnancy? You know, you know, they, you, nobody, when you're sick, when you're, when, when things are upsetting, the notion of being creative actually requires the presence of an outside source to draw our attention to that. We're suggesting here, though, that if it's true that desire ultimately leads to beauty, we then start to wonder, well, what is that beauty really like? And what are some ways that it manifests? And there are three things that, three words that, for me, I, I, I usually use to talk about it. This topic of beauty has been written about by philosophers and artists and people who are far more you know, far more authoritative on the subject than I am. But the three words that I think about that come to me, uh, the first is wonder. This notion that when you encounter beauty in, in many respects, like, you, like you're just captivated. You're captivated by it. I, I tell the story of how this, the, the first time that when, when my wife and I and our kids came to the south rim of the Grand Canyon, it was, yeah. you know, and it was so overwhelming, I could barely look at it. It, it, it almost started to feel painful. Like the, the, the wonder of it was just too much. And the second thing then that we would say, the, the beauty, beauty welcomes us. Beauty says, come on in the room, have a, have a sit, sit down. Like if, if you can stand it, please come in. Beauty welcomes us. And so it's wonder, it's welcome. It doesn't look at us and say, only oh, no, 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 no. Only a few get to see this. Only if you get to, no, it was made for us. So it's wonder, it's welcome. And then it's this notion of worship, this notion that I, I encounter beauty. I encounter a Mark Rothko painting. I encounter, oh, wait, what was the name of the bird that you were talking about before, before uh, we started the tape? Uh, rose, rose-breasted grosbeak. Rose breasted. Okay. Say it five times. I, real I fast. can say like I can say that I can't say that. I, I can't say that I can't say it. I've never actually heard of that bird before, let alone seen that bird before. I can only imagine, but I would invite you all to go look it up and see what it's like. But this whole notion that we see the bird and we're like it it's pointing to something else. Like it like it it like something's gotta be behind this. And this notion of Worship. The beauty draws me to the worship of something. Now, of course, my problem is that I, I see that bird and I want to put it in a cage. I want to have it in my house so that I can see it anytime I want to. Or I, I don't just want to go visit the Rothko or the Van Gogh painting. Like I want it in my house. I don't just want to, I don't just desire beauty. I want to devour it. I want to own it. I want to clutch it. It's some of my challenge. And of course, this is what was happening for Carmen and Graham, this notion of clutching and hoarding the things about their own story and their own brokenness that was creating a rather disintegrating state of affairs in their marriage, rather seeing their marriage as a studio in which we are going to create beauty such that everyone else can come and see the beauty that God is creating in this marriage. 
You know, in the last uh, few years, I've been introduced to the work of a Catholic theologian by the name of Hans Urs von Balthasar, and uh, there's a mouthful. Um, and I can say that because he's deceased and he won't come and strike me. But, um, you know, th- this uh, von Balthasar is generally considered by many to be one of the most uh, influential and important Catholic theologians of the 20th century. And you begin to re- re- read his writings, uh, or in my case, r- reading Aidan Nichols, who is the British priest who interprets von Balthasar, because right. reading von Balthasar <laughs> himself is just kind of it's way above my pay grade. But von Balthasar talks about this notion of, like, in philosophy, in philosophy, in our, in, at least in the West, in philosophy, we like to talk about what we call the transcendentals. That's a fancy schmancy philosophical term that means those things that are fundamental for us as human beings. And they talk about the three transcendentals as being truth, goodness, and beauty. And in the West, we've often talked about them in that order. That first we know, first we think things, and then once we have thought about something enough, then we know it can be good because we've thought it through, because mm-hmm. first I think and therefore I am, right? Right. That Descartes, you know, Rene Descartes, to, yes. I could, right? Yes. Yeah, of course. Like, there's that. There's a French word I could have said to Carmen and Graham, and they might have noticed. Right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Sacre bleu. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, I think we're done here. I, my, my work is done here. My, my work is done here. Come on. Get the train back okay. on the rails. All right. So, so, here, so here's the thing. So you, you've got this huge Western philosophical tradition that basically says, first we think through the world so that we know what's true. Right. And that will tell us what is good. And then, that, that, then, then when we know something is good, then that qualifies it for being beautiful. First there's truth, then there's goodness, then there's beauty. And you know, von Balthasar comes along and says, no, that's backwards. Von Balthasar says... First, you encounter beauty. And once we encounter beauty, the very sense of it tells us of its goodness. And its goodness actually leads us to truth. Hmm. And what's so striking to me is that like, this is exactly how the brain works. First we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. In our lives, you know, if I, I don't know that there is a more beautiful passage of scripture than the first 18 verses of the first chapter of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's prose, but it's poetic. Like, how did this guy come up with this? And we preach this from pulpits. We teach this in seminaries. We write about it in commentaries. We want to know that this is true. But the thing is, Pep, When we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. Before John could write what we read, he first had to have an encounter with Jesus who was doing the dwelling with the disciples. Hmm. They first must actually behold and touch his glory and then write about it. First we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. And we want to be formed in that same way, that image of Jesus in concert with the way that God's actually made our minds and our brains to work. Evil doesn't want this happening. It turns out that Carmen and Graham can't begin to heal first just by us getting them to change the way they think. 
they first have to change literally in what they sense. They have to have a sense that each of them, and in this case, through an outside mediator, it happened to be me, it could have been someone else, someone else is drawing their attention to beauty even before they know that's what's happening. And the beauty that is being drawn out of them is the beauty even of empathy, the beauty of being seen and soothed and safe and secure. Beauty comes to our rescue because when you put it in the room, it then gives our thinking brains the chance to catch up, which is why it takes change so long to happen. Why we can know something, like I can know something theologically. You know, we ask, like I'm I'm 50, I'm almost 59, I'm like, why does it take me so long to change? There are things that I know that I want to be, things that I know that I want to do, that I don't do, things that I don't want to do, that I do. I can know these things as facts, but it's taking a long time for me to catch up because frankly, there are still parts of me that have yet viscerally not beheld the glory of Jesus. And by glory, I don't just mean his fantabulous appearance. I mean the glory of his loving me, the glory of our being loved. We need more practice with that kind of beauty, beginning with empathy as an example, that sees the beauty in us that it wants to call forth, just like we were having to do with Carmen and Graham. And in so doing, giving them this sense of like, oh my goodness, beauty now becomes something that I can create, but it's also something that I'm longing to become. Yeah, you know, when you were talking about changing you know, people say, would say, boy, you've changed. And I, I sure hope so. <laughs> you know, I sure hope so. And I hope, I, I hope the next time that we meet, I've changed again. And I right. hope it continues and continues, right? Because right. That's, that's the journey. Now, one thing I wanted to remind you of is in the first season, when you described beauty and we were talking through it, um, you added another W to it. And, uh, and I think it's apropos here. And that was work, hmm. if you hmm. remember. Because... Yeah. You know, Carmen and Graham, in order to even, you know, start to listen to you talking about beauty and thinking that this was a journey that they wanted to go on, that, that required work for them right. to experience right. the beauty. Well, you know, I, we've, we've used this example before, but we have, we've used it maybe, maybe even more than once here on the show. You all have heard Pepper talk about his you know, the acting moment where you were the, you know, grocery delivery guy. And we're, we've gotten a lot out of this story. We have, I know we have, but I mean, I, I, again, I, I, I go, I, but I go back to it to this because I want to emphasize that you walked onto the stage and the director noticed that something was different and that something different required micro moment, persevering practice in your mind and with your body over and over and over again that actually then displayed itself on the stage without anybody else in the house knowing what had happened. Maybe not even the actors that you were working with, but somebody sees this because your embodied presence is doing the work. This kind of work that we talk about that is related, we think is really, in many respects, what artistic expression is about. We talk about how, uh, it's, it's, I've read where the greatest poetry is written by those who write the most poetry. 
because so much of what they write, they would say it's not very good and they don't keep it, but they're working really hard at, at honing their craft, at being present with this perseverance that St. Paul writes about in, in Romans 5, but we're going to persevere even in the face of suffering. And the beauty emerges in the face of this kind of work with us. I think the other thing that we like to focus on is this notion that it emerges in us, not just because we do the work, but it emerges in us because we are actually doing this work as it's being called out of us. With Carmen and Graham, that work that they wanted to do to create beauty in their marriage was not going to happen very easily unless they had an outside brain that was working with them. How many of us, like, you know, I want to learn to paint. Well, I'm not just going to, like, paint. I'm going to need to take a class in which somebody else is going to help me do this. I mean, you, you've taught acting. You've directed people. I think about the, you know, the amount of work that you've done as a director. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I, I would love to, I don't know if you have any stories, but uh, uh, stories about like what it's like for you to, to watch a moment emerge in which somebody has acted in a way that is directly related to the work you've done as a director. I wonder if you can speak to that. Well, yeah, it's actually one of the most sort of satisfying things that, that you can that you can experience, or that, I, that I've experienced is, uh, professionally. Um, there have been a couple of different times where um, I, I've worked with someone and they would just have a, uh, I'm thinking particularly of a, of a guy who was just having a block and he couldn't get mm. past mm. this thing. And, and I would just come over and I like to have private conversations with the actors, huh. um, you know, kind of pull them aside and... and, and private as of, in like kind of away from the other folks yeah, that are on the set. Yeah, yeah, whisper mm-hmm. in their ears encouragement or or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It's just something that I learned along the way that I think is effective and mm-hmm. um and then to to watch that this guy just blossom and come come out of what was blocking him and to just just hit a home run at the wow. end of it is just it's hugely satisfying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, it, in many respects, it it is a reminder to us that beauty that we create is as much something that emerges because somebody else is involved in calling it forth, and that it does require work, but that the work that we produce also then becomes the opportunity for others to find themselves being drawn to the wonder, find themselves being drawn to the welcome and having their attention directed toward worship. And so, you know, one of the things as you all are listening, I I think about, you know, the question of where are the places in our lives, where are the places in your lives where you long to create beauty? And you might think, well, Kurt, like I, I, I don't, I don't really think of that. That's not what I, I don't think very much about that. Um, and, I, and I would say, like, especially in those parts of your life where you're wishing life could be different. And you would say, well, yeah, that's the part that I would least expect beauty to emerge. And so I would say, oh, so in your marriage or, oh, with your with your child or in your work. Like, there, there's this place of longing for us to cr- be curators and creators of beauty. And this is, you know, in the spirit of... Mako Fujimura's work, this notion that, that he wrote about in Culture Care and what he's most recently written in Art and Faith, A Theology of Making, this notion that we are to be generative, just like in the Genesis account, we are to be generative, we are to be people of new creation. 
And that new creation comes especially in those places where we would least expect it because it feels so barren, perhaps, or it feels so broken. But, you know, Pep, that's not how it starts. Because when we talk about beauty and artistic creation, all we have to do is look at children. Hmm. We don't start by looking at us as adults. All we have to do is look at children. Children invariably make stuff, right? Yeah. As, you know, as soon as they can put things in their hands and hold them with their like, newly developing opposable thumbs, they're like, they're making stuff. And, you know, they don't first begin just by making, th- you know, they're not, they don't begin with imaginary things, right? They're not, they're not first like writing novels, right? They're making things out of little stuff. They're making mud pies. They're making, you know, you name it. I mean, you, you have children. I mean, your, your kids, you were, just, you were just talking about how your kids are still making things. Yeah, yes. It's, uh, I, I remember just, you know, that, that experience as a parent where, you know, your, your son or your daughter would, would be drawing something, you know, and, and just wanting to bring it to you and wanting to see that expression in your face of, you know, this, this is wonderful. This is beautiful. And then, of right. course, they're always waiting for you to put it up on the fridge because that was kind of the ring of honor, right? You, 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 yeah. you hang it up there and then it's, it's really a piece of art. And then it when, is. when your spouse comes home, you, you point it out and you say, look what Coleman made, look what Hannah made, you know, and, and, and call them out and, and tell them how beautiful it is and, and all that kind of thing. So, right. yeah. And, you know, tr- during the uh, worst part of the pandemic, my, my kids, the older two don't live in the house anymore, but they were, they all came home and they were here during that time. And, um, you know, they turned my back furnace room in the basement into an art studio. And Amazing. they had, they had a, uh, it's funny because one side of the room has got a punching bag and weights and the other side of the room <laughs> had easels yeah. and um, yeah. oil paints and they would sit down there and, and I think it was a way for them to, you know, cause it was an anxious time for all of us and, right. you know, not knowing, right. not knowing what was going to happen and, and being isolated and, and all of that. And just right. for them, a, a way for them to connect with one another and mm-hmm. to create beauty um, right. separately and together and, and to share that with each other and, and with us was, was pretty awesome. Right. Well, you know, one of the next things that we talk about with children, like children have this impulse to do this, to create things, to make things. And there is this trajectory of they make something and it's invariably something that is embodied, right? It's, it's, it's material. It's, you know, it's crayons on a paper. It's something they've glued together. There is a thing that you can touch and feel and sense and show to somebody else. And it's, it's a tribute, I think, to this notion that beauty is not, is, is not an abstraction. Beauty is this thing that we are just designed to, and there is no, like, there's no guile there's no embarrassment. There is just comfort and confidence that they bring you this thing, right? Daddy, look what I made you, right? There's, they're, not, they're not wondering, like, is he going to like this? Is this good enough? You know, I was spending some time with uh, Maku Fujimura a couple of years ago, and we were talking about the work of people like Jackson Pollock and others who have done kind of abstract work. And, you know, the, the common conversation that will sometimes show up with people who would say, well, like, oh, my three-year-old could do that. 
And one of the things that Michael pointed out, he said, you're, you're right, your three-year-old could do that, but could you do that? And he said, one of the things, one of the, I'll never forget this, Michael said, one of the things about adults is that we have so worked our way into self-consciousness and self-condemnation that really begins, really begins to take root, depending upon our stories, begins to take root around, around, around the time we reach like second or third grade. When the learning process for many of us now gets spliced together with the anxiety of having to like perform well enough, something that you weren't really doing when you were in kindergarten and for many when they were in first grade, but we have to, I have to perform well enough. And by the time I'm an adult, if someone were to just hand me a paintbrush and say, well, hey, just there's a blank canvas, go at it. I, you know, the first thing I'm going to think is like, like, what am I doing here? Right. This right. is like, like, no, no, I don't know. I can't paint. I can. So I'm so self-conscious that as much as I like to think that I could do what my three-year-old can do. Like, I can't do that. In fact, it takes work to peel off my layers of shame and self-consciousness that my wounding and unfinished business has elicited in me in order to get to a place where I could just start to throw paint around and not care a whit but expect that somebody's going to come in and they're going to see it and they're going to sense that just because it's there and I did it, they want to put it on their fridge. And when Jesus says, unless you change and become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. This is just one more way, it seems to me, that beauty is echoing Mm. his call. Beauty is saying, until and or unless you can receive me, and engage in the creation of the material world with the expectation that you want to show it to somebody else, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Not even a matter of like, you're not allowed in, as much as a matter of like, it's going to be hard to survive here because this is how it's going to be. We're going to ask people to be so immersed in beauty that you are unashamed of, even in the places in your relationships, Carmen and Graham, that feel the hardest. We want you to know that beauty is coming for you. And that for you thing then is this next thing, right? This notion that children make these things out of material work and they're made to be beautiful, even at this young age, right? They think like this, they, it's Van Gogh to them. Like right. and there's a price to be paid for this, <laughs> right? And they want it to be displayed in public, which is why it goes in the refrigerator, right? And there'll right. be more people. And in so doing, You, the parent, you expand their window of tolerance to help them be more comfortable with other people paying attention to them and their work. But the next thing we see is that this work of art becomes itself a conduit for relationship. Hmm. They bring it to you and you're looking at them and they're looking at you and the painting, this crayon on paper, becomes this way that God uses to draw us to each other. So we start with this longing to be known in order to create beauty, only to find that the beauty itself draws us further into being known, in order for us then to become that very thing that we're creating. We'll talk more about that in our next episode, this notion that God is not just in the business of having us make things like he made them. He's longing for us to become the beauty that he imagines that is foreshadowed by the beauty that we are creating here on the earth. And one of the ways that artists are so helpful for us is that they help us by drawing our attention 
to beauty, things that we often don't pay attention to in order to draw our attention to what we long to become. Hmm. I remember one of the... Oh, sorry. Go 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 ahead. ahead. No, I was just going to say, I remember the first time that I... I ever really sat in front of a painting. Hmm. Like, and it was you who led... We had a... um, It was a Rothko. Mm -hmm. And... um, It's in my office right now. Yeah. It's the painting. Right, number 61. Yes. And I was, you know, first very... I mean, you know, I, I was willing... But it was also, I look up and I see this thing. And I'm like, okay, you know, what, what's going to happen? It's a couple of stripes and it's, <laughs> you know. And yeah. I, rem- I remember sitting and having an emotional experience with this. Mm. And, uh, and I've, it's been something that I've done several times since. But that discovering of, of beauty and feeling a connectedness to it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. you know not having any idea what the intention of the artist was. Right. 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 But still having a, an experience of my own uh, in that moment. Right. Right. Well, that sense that we might not even know explicitly yet what the artist's intention is, mm. but that notion of wonder and then welcome, we get a sense that even if I don't know explicitly to be welcomed, like who doesn't want to be welcomed? Like genuinely. I mean, this is why art can bring people to tears, because it touches the parts of us that for so long have not felt welcomed. The parts of us, as you all are listening, you know, that still feel broken, that still feel pushed to the outside, that feel scapegoated. The broken parts, the parts that we've kind of exiled. And so it calls to us. It reminds us then that it's not good for us to be alone. Hmm. Beauty itself is calling to the new creation. It's calling those parts that have been traumatized and where shame resides in order to make sure that it's not left there. And, you know, we really need each other in order for this to happen. You know, we see at the dawn of creation that God made them male and female, right? We're not, I don't just get to do life on my own. I do life with others who are different from me. I need somebody else to help pull the beauty out of me, to call it forth. Uh, the stories that I've, I've learned in writing this book, you know, one was, I learned that, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach, who is considered to be the father of classical music, and for many, he's like the, you know, he's like the hard deck on which all music in the West kind of rises from, come to find out that his work was largely, had kind of been hidden back in the shadows until Felix Mendelssohn comes along some 100 years later and discovers it and starts to play it. And then Pablo Casals, the great cellist, comes and starts to play his cello uh, pieces again. And it opens Bach to the world. Like Bach needed Mendelssohn and and Casals. And in the same way that Roger Fry, the great English art critic, found Van Gogh's work that was a bit languishing. It was was known on the continent, but not known in the West, very far in the English-speaking world. And because of Roger Fry, we now have Van Gogh to the extent that we do. We need each other in the way that Bach needed Mendelssohn, that Van Gogh needed Roger Fry, and that I need you, and that we need Amy, Hmm. and that Amy needs us, and that we, we need our kids, and our kids need us. And it's fair to say that in this grand project of desire, 
to create beauty and to emerge as beauty in our own lives. That evil very much intends to use trauma and shame to keep that from happening. And so even as y'all are listening today, some of you might find it kind of hard to connect the dots. Like, what's, like, I don't, I don't know, Kurt, like, yeah, I guess I could go to a museum. I guess I could look online. But what's how does this make any difference? I want to uh, invite you to be hopeful. I want you to look to where we will be going next. Um, I know that it's easy, as Ian McGilchrist points out in The Master and His Emissary, that culture itself is... Uh, it, it easily wants to denigrate beauty. It easily wants to just have us push it off and say, oh, beauty is just an extra. It's just, you know, an add-on and it's an accessory. But the biblical narrative would suggest that beauty is actually necessary for our survival, let alone our flourishing. Evil doesn't want us to find out that piece of information because as we've said before, the moment that we begin to pay attention to beauty Evil will perk up its ears because it will know that its days are numbered. And for those of us who long for beauty to emerge in the hardest places of your lives this morning, I want you to know, we want you to know, that God's intention is for you to become the very beauty of which we speak. And to become so in a way that you yourself will eventually find unrecognizable, but in a way that will be irresistibly attractive, not for consumption, not for devouring, but for wonder and welcome and worship. Mm. Thanks be to God. Yes. Kurt, this has been great. And I think that the one thing that I'm really enjoying is uh, having the opportunity to read along with this. It gives me a better understanding of of the work that you've done in the book. I'm really grateful that you've written the book and you've done this work. Mm. It's beautiful. Mm. It really is beautiful. Thanks. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. I look forward to next week. Um, we'll continue our conversation on beauty next week. And um, uh, do you want to talk a little, give a little bit of a, of a what's going to be happening next week? Sure. So, you know, we've talked a little bit today about some fundamentals about beauty and how it's inherent. It shows up in human development. It shows up with children. It's just a natural outgrowth of how we operate in the world. And in our next episode, we're going to talk about how it's actually, uh, it, it is that because it's a natural outgrowth of what it means for God to be himself. Hmm that the Holy Trinity couldn't help but create beauty and couldn't help but making us to be his image bearers in such a way that we do that. And so we're going to talk more about what it's like for God to be delighted in the beauty that he has made in the beauty that he wants to co-create with us in the world and how that will speak powerfully ultimately into the lives of Carmen and Graham and so many others. Awesome. I can't wait. Thanks for this time, Kurt. Thanks, Pat. Till next you. time. Love you too.
This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.